be seated. At this point in the service, we have what our bulletin calls a prayer of intercession. Uh, This is also called the elder prayer or the pastoral prayer, uh, the great prayer, or as children often call it, the long prayer. Uh, We have all sorts of prayers in our service. This is my favorite, of course, uh, where we get to pray for a while uh, for the needs of our church because God answers our prayers and we come in his name and lift up uh, our beloved uh, people, friends, and family uh, that God would hear our prayers and act uh, for our good and his glory. So would you join me uh, for this prayer? Our Lord and our God, we come to you this day with prayers on our lips and faith in our hearts. Trusting you to hear us through Christ, our great high priest, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Hear our prayers today. We offer them in the matchless name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for those amongst our fellowship uh, who are in need. We think uh, top of our list, our dear sister Polly Elniff, and we pray for a, uh, a speedy recovery for her and for her to return home and for her ongoing care uh, in the coming days and weeks. We pray for Jan Blakely and her test coming up this week. We pray that uh, you would strengthen her lungs, you would encourage her very soul. Or do we grieve and mourn with our sister Mary Wiedenhop at the passing of her brother Tom? And we pray for your comfort to be with her and the rest of her family. We give you thanks for Tim and Donna Barnett and for the many years of service at our church. We pray that you would uh, give them rest in a busy season of transition, uh, comfort them as they say goodbye to a home and a place and uh, a, a community as transition to a new one. Lord, we pray for Micaiah and Sarah Liner. We rejoice with them uh, at the gift of life at her pregnancy, and we pray that you would strengthen her and uh, their baby in the coming months ahead. We give you thanks for the recent births in our church of James and Annie and Sawyer and Jude. We pray for their parents as they care for and raise these newborn children in the nurture and the fear of you. Our Lord, with school starting back this week, we remember all of our students and teachers and families. We thank you for restful summers and pray for a fruitful year. Help our students embrace their calling that even at their young ages, they would seek to glorify you in their studies. We pray for those teachers in our church. Give them strength, wisdom, and patience in their calling to shape the hearts and minds of their students towards your truth. We pray for our homeschool teachers. Give them wisdom, joy, and endurance as they teach and disciple their own children. Use these academic pursuits amongst our body to form and mold our covenant children so that they would not be conformed to this world, but would be transformed by the renewal of their minds to discern what is your will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, as we pray for the academic school year, we lift up our own discipleship ministries here at church. We pray for our students moving up in Sunday school classes and a new year beginning in our Wednesday night ministry. We ask you to attend these gatherings that our children would learn weekly about Jesus. They would grow in their faith. We thank you for so many volunteers who teach and help and serve in the nursery. Grant them joy and wisdom and patience in this precious service in your church. Lord, moving up in ages, we remember our college students. We pray for Nell and Caleb and Isaac that in this year they might grow in faith 
They would flourish in their calling as students. We pray for new students next door at UNCA, as well as students at AB Tech and Montreat and others. We lift up campus ministries and churches to love and care for these children. We pray for our RUF campus ministers at Western Carolina and Appalachian State as they begin a busy year hosting students, cooking food, writing sermons, training leaders, planning events, all with the aim to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. With even a different type of education, we pray for our officer candidates as they have begun training on what it looks like to be elders and deacons this morning and throughout the fall. We thank you for providing a number of prospective elders and deacons to shepherd and to serve our church. Lord, I pray this class would not merely grow their minds and knowledge, but more importantly, that you would increase their love for Christ and His church. You would develop their gifts and their character to be used to minister to your flock. We pray as we always do for the peace and the purity of our church and pray that you would grow and humble us as a family of sinners saved by grace. From our own church, oh God, we extend our prayers out to other churches in our area. We pray for the congregations of Highlands Presbytery in Asheville and throughout Western North Carolina. We lift up other pastors and area churches in like-minded denominations. We pray for Duff James and City Church. For Father Gary Ball at Redeemer Anglican. For Justin Perdue at Covenant Baptist. So many others. Lord, we yearn to see your church flourish in Asheville. Not our church, but your church. We ask you open doors of opportunity for us, for our sister churches, for Christians to go forth. To walk through those doors with your gospel. That we would indeed see dozens and hundreds come to faith in our city, in our county, in our community. Lord, we pray this to you, the Lord of the harvest, that you would send your laborers and bring in a great harvest unto your glory. We pray for this all this day, again, in the matchless name of Jesus, who hears and perfects our prayers always before your throne. Amen. As we turn to the preached word, let me invite you to prepare your hearts by singing hymn 538. Now, we're going to study the idea in the sermon today uh, of God entrusting us with talents, with gifts, with responsibilities, that we use those in service of His church. That's what this hymn's all about. That God, we pray that God would take all that's ours and use it for Him and His kingdom and His glory. Take my life and let it be hymn 538. Would you stand with me as we sing?
be seated. Let me invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word, this time to the New Testament. Our text this morning can be found on page 830 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. That's the blue book uh, in that rack. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible from home, use that and take it home with you. It's our gift to you. And we have plenty more uh, in the back to restock the pews. If you brought your own Bible, we're of course in Matthew. And we are towards the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel. We are in chapter uh, 25. We have been for a number of weeks now in the final teaching portion of Jesus' ministry. In two weeks, we will switch back to narrative and we will begin to read what happened in those last two to three days of Jesus' life. And we will follow in the last two, three chapters of Matthew, which will take us uh, into Thanksgiving, we will follow that final narrative. Before we get there, we have what is a sense, in a sense his final sermon. And his final sermon is on the last days, and he looks forward to his return. We have had message after message about the return of Jesus, and he is concluding his sermon with five parables. You think I have a lot when I have three points. He has five parables, right? At the end of his sermon, the parables drive home the points. Last week, we saw three parables. This morning, we have the fourth parable. It's called, probably in your Bible, the parable of the talents. Next week, we will have the final parable, the end of the sermon, uh, as a topic on the final judgment, the sheep and the goats. That's next week. Today is our familiar passage, the parable of the talents. We read it in context. It's part of the sermon about the return of Jesus. Follow along with me, beginning at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? 
then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers, the flower fades, or of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, in parables like this, it feels as if heaven and hell hang in the balance. And I pray, Lord, that you would press upon all of our hearts the seriousness and the urgency of these verses. I pray, Lord, that you would leave none of us here deaf to your word, deaf to your warnings. You would show us the reality of your return. You would show us the nearness of your return. You would show us what it means to be ready, to be prepared. And over all that, O oh Lord, you would show us Jesus, that we might leave here trusting, resting in him alone, with joy and confidence in our hearts. That is joy that indeed lies before us. I pray you would speak to us, O oh Father, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Getting uh, your house ready for guests to come over is a lot of work. You can imagine getting the house in order, cooking the food, getting the sheets all clean and set on the bed, getting the throw pillows in the right place on the couches, right? All that you need to do to get ready for guests to come over. But as you're getting ready, it can feel a whole lot different depending on who it is that's coming to your house, right? If you're getting your house ready for a strict mother-in-law to stop by, it can be a little stressful, right? You know, those pillows really need to be at the just right place on the couch, right? You need the little corners of the, uh, the, the house to be free of all dust, right? You're worried about her straightening that picture on the wall. Maybe you're not so excited as you get the house ready. Now imagine you're getting the house ready and it's the fun uncle who's coming over, right? You got to make sure there's soda in the fridge, you got to make sure there's popcorn ready to go. you got to get the trampoline cleaned off because he's going to come jump with the kids, right? You're getting ready, but it's a whole different attitude. It's a whole different motivation depending on who's coming over. This passage teaches us to get ready, but it's all about who you think is coming, or rather, what you think about the one who is coming. We're going to see two different types of people, two different types of servants anticipating the return of Jesus. Some are ready and some aren't. And the key to the parable is what the servants think about the master. And those who think rightly about the master's coming, they're ready. Those who have a wrong view, those who are not looking forward to it, they're not ready. Because how you see Jesus, how you understand Jesus this very day, what you think of God's Son determines, it shapes 
your readiness for his return. We'll put that in one sentence. How you see Jesus today shapes your readiness for his return tomorrow. How you see him today shapes your readiness for his return tomorrow. We've seen one theme over the last couple weeks. We've seen the truth that Jesus is returning. That return is certain. But the timing of the return is uncertain. Nobody knows. This is the third week on the same theme. Last week, the three parables taught us to be watchful, to be faithful, to be ready, to be prepared. This morning's parable is more of the same, that theme of readiness, but it highlights what the servants think about their master. So I want you to be ready, because that's what Jesus calls you to in this text. But more importantly, I want you to see Jesus for who he really is. I want you to see the grace and the goodness of our God. If you see that, you'll have no choice but to be ready. Our parable shows us two ways of seeing Jesus. But only one makes us ready. We're going to see that as the parable progresses through different scenes. If this were a play, there would be three scenes we're going through. Right? The first scene, the first uh, act in the play is verses 14 and 15. We see here that the master departs. The master departs. Verses 14 and 15. The parable jumps right into it. I'm not going to wait to the end to make sense of it. To, we're going to pull out the meaning because it's right there on the surface as Jesus goes along. For it, the return of Jesus, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. All right. So we have a master who's leaving on a journey. He has servants. We read in the next verse. There are three of them. And he is going to entrust to them his own property while he's gone. Luke has a version of this. It's kind of helpful to understand what the servants are called to do. I don't think it's the exact same parable. But all we know from these verses is that the master entrusts them with his own property. So this is key right off the jump. Whose property is it? It's the master's. It's not the servant's. They have been entrusted with property from the master. The property is in the form, verse 15, uh, of talents. Not a talent like a skill, not a talent like shooting a basketball, right, or playing a violin, not that kind of talent. You see maybe your footnote, a talent is a, uh, a monetary unit. It's a way to measure finances, and it means about 20 years of earned wages from a laborer. It's a lot of money. So this master is doing well for himself. He has, according to my quick math, eight talents to entrust to three servants. So you get your calculator, eight divided by three is what? 2.33333, right? Servant's going to get two and a third talent. That would seem to be the way to divide the talents among the servants. Except we read that he gives, in verse 15, each according to his ability. So our master knows his guys. He knows his servants. He knows who's good at what and who's not so good at what. He's watched them work. He's watched them handle their finances. He knows who he's good with having five of his talents and who he wants to only have one of his talents. Each according to his own ability. As we begin to make application from this, a narrow way to understand this is to understand how much money we today each have, and that's sort of like the talents. 
But as we read through this, I think it's clear that Jesus is illustrating a much bigger point than just his followers, his servants, are to be faithful with the money he entrusts us with. I think it has to do with the hymn we just sang. Every line in the hymn is something else. Our voice, our feet, our money. Yes, of course, our hands, our lives. All of it is given to the Lord because he has given it all to us. God has entrusted us not just with finances. He's entrusted us with responsibility. He's entrusted us with skills and ability and and gifts in his church. He has opened up doors of, of ministry that we as individuals are trusted with, that our king, our master, knows every single one of us. And to each of us, he has given certain abilities and responsibilities and gifts and, yes, finances, talents, as it were, so that we would use those according to our own ability for his purpose. He doesn't give them each equal amounts. He gives them according to their ability. I wonder how that makes you feel, right? Maybe you wish you were entrusted with a little bit more, right? God, I, you could entrust me with some more money, I promise, right? Just give me a little more money. I'll use it just right, okay? I remember as a kid, I just wanted you know, money and responsibility and authority. I wanted it all, right? And maybe you're like that. Maybe you want more. God, why aren't you entrusting me with more? I want to tell you about a man that some of you know the name. His name is B.B. Warfield. He was a well-known uh, Presbyterian scholar and professor up at old Princeton, back when Princeton Seminary used to be Orthodox. And he was a phenomenal teacher and lecturer. And he was well-known amongst his students. And he could have traveled the world and gotten paid handsomely and had his, his lectures and his teaching kind of spread all over. He was sort of a you know, mini-celebrity of his day as far as a biblical scholar and teacher. He turned all of those down because he had a responsibility back home. If you know his story, you know he married a woman, a wife he loved named Annie, and on the honeymoon she began to experience uh, some sickness and mental health issues and psychological issues, and for the rest of her life she began to grow more and more needy and more and more homebound. And this brilliant, biblical, theological scholar spent most of his days caring for his invalid wife. They said he wouldn't leave his house for more than a couple hours, just enough to lecture to his students and get back home to take care of her. Towards the end of her life, he was uh, consumed as her primary caregiver. I wonder if he wanted more responsibility. If he was content with what God had given him in that season to care for his wife his Annie that God had entrusted to him. The flip side, when you read these verses, it may be that you wish you were entrusted with less, right? You get all those jobs and responsibility and authority, and all of a sudden you think, that's not what I wanted. I don't want all this responsibility. I want less of this. I want out. I don't want those five talents. I want to be the one talent guy, right? You Lord of the Ring fans will remember the conversation between this young character named Frodo. Frodo's the one who is entrusted with this magical ring, and he has to go destroy this ring. And it's a really hard journey, and it's a monstrous responsibility on his shoulders, and he doesn't like it. And he wants out of this ring. He wants to go back and just hang out in the Shire, right, where he doesn't have any jobs. And he tells his friend Gandalf, he says, I wish this ring his talent, had never come to me. 
His friend says, so do all who live to see such times, but it's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Gandalf sounds a lot like the master here. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. So what has the master entrusted to you? If you're a Christian, you're 99, you're nine months old. God has entrusted responsibility, gifts, talents to you. Not what did he trust you with five years ago. Not what did he entrust you with in your career. Not what he entrusts you with back in the past. Not what do you hope he's going to entrust you with in the coming years and decades. Not today. Where you're at, with your age, with your job, with your family, with your place in life, with your situation at this church, in this community, in this world, what has God entrusted you with? And the follow-up question, are you using that for his purposes? For his glory. Every single one of us. You might wish you were the five talent guy. You might wish you were the one talent girl, right? God has given you exactly, because he knows you, exactly what is right for you. What has he entrusted you with? And are you using it for his purpose and his glory? So the master does when he departs. Now, what are the servants going to do while he's away? That's our second point. Our second scene. He's away. He's off the set. Scene two, the master delays. Verses 16 to 18. The master delays. It'd be easy to know how to use the gifts God's given us if he comes back the day after he gives them to us, right? No, he delays. That's the theme here. That's the theme of these passages. It's a long time. How do we act while we wait? For his return. Three servants, two different actions. The first two servants, they trade the talents they've been entrusted with. They double their money. Pretty good investment, right? Don't you want to know how these guys, I want to know their investment strategy. They're doubling their money. His money, actually. The third servant, though, verse 18, we read, he would receive the one talent, went and dug it in the ground, and hid his master's money. I bet in a room this size, some of y'all have hidden some gold somewhere in the ground, right? (laughs) This isn't about financial investments. We're going to come in a moment to the motivation behind this servant. Why would he hide his money in a hole? This isn't about how we invest or how we plan our finances. It's about how servants care for what has been entrusted with them. It's a parable, this part, about how you and I Care for that which the master has entrusted to us. And there's two options. In the words of Jesus, there's either either the faithful option or the slothful option. The lazy option. Here's where we helpfully understand what faithfulness means in context. It's put in opposition to slothfulness. So the lazy one does nothing. The faithful one does something. Attempts to invest, attempts to use that which has been entrusted to him for the good of the master. It's his after all. We're going to see in a moment that when the master returns and judges them, the judgment is not based on how much they produce. 
The judgment is based on how they act while he's away. He doesn't say, well done, good, and fruitful servant. He doesn't say, well done, good, and brilliant servant. He doesn't say, well done, good, and successful servant. There's a principle in here. And that principle is that we as Christians are called to be faithful with what God has given to us. Not necessarily fruitful. We are called to be faithful. We are called to plant and water and pray and work and trust the results to God. When you think of something as simple as a Christian who owns a business who makes a decision to be closed on Sunday, right? They are going to probably be less financially successful. But is God going to look at that person and say, why didn't you earn more money for me? No, it's a question not of fruitfulness, but of faithfulness. Faith acts in obedience to God and then trust God with the outcomes. We can get so hung up on the outcomes that we forget that God has simply called us to act in faith. He has called us to follow him in obedience and trust. We plant, we water, we pray, we work. He gives the growth. I mean, think about these two different approaches to what to do with the talent. And to press the analogy, which one took more faith? To bury something in the ground or to invest it? (laughs) To trade, to, to, to take risks to make financial investments. Which one of those took more faith? Again, this is not about how you invest your finances. This is how you act in faith with what God has been entrusted, that which with God has entrusted to you. That means don't bury your gifts. That means don't be so scared that you don't want to use your gifts You're just going to bury them in the ground because that's the safe place. To bury our gifts, to bury our talents is the faithless action. Think for a moment about the middle guy here, right? The guy with two talents. You want to know what he thought about the other guy that got five talents, right? Have you looked around and thought, man, I think God's calling me to this, but she's a whole lot more talented than I am at doing that, right? Or he is so much better at me at this. So I'll just... I'm just going to bury it in the ground, right? This parable calls us to take small steps of faith, to see how God has gifted us according to our ability and step out in faith. Look, there's always going to be someone with more talents than you. There's always someone with more money than you. There's always someone with more talent than you, right? Look at a guy with two talents. He doesn't bury it in fear. He invests it with faith. That is how God calls us to live faithfulness today while he delays in the return of Jesus. But finally, the master does return. And how does he regard these different efforts for his servants? That's why I wanted you to see the remainder of the text is the third and final scene That's the master demands. Verses 19 to 30. The master demands. I mean, verse 19 is either really exciting or it's really terrifying. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came 
and settled accounts with them. All right, first he settles accounts with the faithful servant, verses 20 to 23. Those servants, they bring their money, and they bring all that they have invested, and uh, the, the, the investment has yielded, and they bring it all, five and five, two and two, they bring it to the master. And he says to them, to both of them, the same thing. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He judges what they have done. He assesses how they have spent their time. Now, we need to take a little parenthesis, a little side note here to talk about the place of good works in the Christian life. Because we believe what the Bible clearly teaches is that we are saved not by good works, we're saved by faith. And yet we can easily become confused in a parable like this and think, it's all about the works I present to God. And I really want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant, so I better get busy doing some good works here that I can offer to him. Our Confession of Faith has a very helpful chapter on good works, if you're ever confused. Let me summarize a couple of those points. One is that work is the fruit of faith. Good works are the fruit of faith. The fruit and evidence of a good and lively faith. When we believe upon Jesus, what comes out of our lives are good works. It is inevitable because we are trusting in Christ, and that faith will bear fruit. I've said this before from the pulpit. We can be really bad fruit inspectors. We can be looking for certain fruit that's not there and bad at finding other fruit that's supposed to be there. But we know that God promises to work, that our good works are the fruit of faith. Secondly, our ability to do good works, where does it come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Christians know this. Because our good works are almost always mixed with Bad motivations, aren't they? You've been praised for doing something good and you felt guilty inside because you thought, man, I just did that so I could get your praise, right? We know that our good works aren't our own strength. They are wholly the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we have no ability to do good works. And then finally, as it relates to this paragraph, God accepts our good works. That should baffle you, that a holy God of the universe accepts your, no offense, your imperfect and weak work on his behalf. The reason he does is because they're accepted through Jesus. Those talents that we know aren't much, but we decide not to bury and we trust in Christ and we exercise them in faith and we know it's not great. It is beloved by the Father because it is all accepted through Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. The ones who trust in Christ that produces those good works that through Jesus are accepted by the Father. Look how he assigns them future work. He says, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Remember in context, this is about the return of Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth. It's not about this life. It's about what is to come. There's something here about what's going to happen in heaven and in glory and being part of ruling over all of heaven and part of the sons and daughters of the king. It is too good, right? Sometimes it's hard to comprehend, but Jesus is giving them a wonderful promise of that which is to come. And the best part is the final line when he admits them 
into the joy of your master. This is where the parable blows up. It makes no sense, right? That doesn't really make sense in the world of the parable. That's where we go straight to Jesus. It's like the five bridesmaids who were ready in the last parable and who enter into the marriage feast. Here's that same entering into the joy of the Father. Now all that which is good and beautiful is paired on the other side, which that is bad and ugly at the end of the parable. Verses 24 to 30. Here's the slothful servant. He digs up the hole. He gets out the one talent. He gives it to the master. And if if I could describe his body language, it would be uh, myself as a 16-year-old teenager that had no respect for mom and dad. Right Here it is. Just take it. Right? Hey, he has no desire to serve and honor and love his master. Look how he presents that which he is entrusted with, and then he starts his role of excuses. Verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. He was afraid and so he did nothing. The master sees right through this. Because if you really thought I was a hard man, you would have worked extra hard to have a yield, right? You didn't really believe this. You're just lazy. You're making up stuff about who I am. Now, the master saying, answering in those verses, you knew me to be a, 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 you knew me to be a hard man. That's not Jesus admitting he's hard, right? That's not Jesus saying he's harsh. That's the master saying, if you really thought this, which you didn't, because it's just a lame excuse, then you would have acted a different way. He responds to his excuses by taking that one talent and giving it to another. And then he doesn't admit him into the joy. Rather, he casts him into the outer darkness. This man's total lack of any fruit is evidence that he has no faith. This is not a parable saying some of you are more faithful than others as Christians. And some of you should be worried about what God's going to say to you if you're a Christian. That's not what this is at all. Any Christian who trusts in Christ will bear good fruit and will have these words, these beautiful words, well done, said to us on the last day because we're in Jesus. The warning here is that for those who don't trust Christ, all your excuses will fail before God. The Bible says that God will shut every mouth. That's every mouth that makes an excuse. You see, there's three servants. And they all have the same master. So what's different? The difference is not the master. The difference is how the servants see the master. How does the wicked and lazy servant see his master as harsh and demanding? I mean, it sounds like Pharaoh from the book of Exodus, doesn't it? That's how the lazy, wicked servant thinks of God? As a harsh and demanding master? 
If you think that this morning, I am sorry. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not who our God shows himself to be. How do the good servants see their master? Same guy. They see him as good and gracious, don't they? They can't wait to serve him. They can't wait till he comes back to see what they've done. They know a God, as the hymn says, who is slow to chide and swift to bless. This isn't a harsh master. This is a gracious master. I mean, think with me for just a second here. Were their works good enough to match their reward? Was doing a little bit of good in this life enough to match everlasting joy? No. No. God weighs their works, not on a scale of justice, but on a scale of love and of grace. You've heard of these fundraiser dinners that cost $25,000 a plate to get into, right? Well, one guy got in paying five cents. The other got in paying two cents, right? That's the grace of this master to accept imperfect, lowly works offered in Christ that in him we are given eternal joy. The only one whose works match the reward is Jesus himself. The only one who deserves the joy of the Father based on a life of faithfulness is Jesus Christ. Everybody else falls woefully short. I don't care if you have one, two, five talents. He is the only one. The Gospel tells us that He who earned entrance into the joy of the Father has gifted us His faithfulness so that we are counted not as faithless, but as those looking to Christ who are seen by God as having done everything Jesus did, accomplished all that He accomplished, and welcomed by the grace of our Father into an eternal reward. How do you see the Master? Is He a mean boss? Is He a a killjoy? Is He the bore with all those rules that just annoy you? Is He one with no grace and only law? then you're not ready for the return. But if you see Him as the good and gracious Savior, if you see Him as the one who is slow to chide and swift to bless, you are ready. Press on. Trust Christ. Keep doing those good works to the fruits and evidence of your faith. The key verse here is often quoted at funerals, isn't it? You hear often at a funeral, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's really good. But I think when we quote that line, we miss the best part. The best part is enter into the joy of your master. On that day, y'all, we're not going to be looking backwards at what we've done. We're looking ahead to an eternity of joy. The joy, not our own joy, but entering into his joy. Joy, The same God who says He will rejoice over you with gladness. What does it mean to enter into somebody else's joy? Let me tell you what it looks like in my life. And we'll close with this. Uh, I was going to Disney World. I hate Disney World. Uh, It's the most annoying place on earth. Not the happiest place on earth. 
Give me a book and a beach or a book and mountains, and I'm good. Uh, None of this, the mouse and all the other stuff, right? But we went to Disney World for three days, and I was so grumpy on the way down there. I did not want to go. And I was grumpy the night before, and I was a grouch going in. And then I saw the look on my kids' faces going to Disney World, right? And it, this is not a commercial for Disney World. It really is magical, right? For them, not for me. But it was the, one of the best three, weeks, three days of my life because I lived it through their eyes. And their joy became my joy. And I entered into, for those three days, their own joy. Our joy going into heaven is enough, isn't it? But now Jesus tells us we enter into the everlasting pools of the joy of our Father, which we can never begin to plunge the depths of. Because of a couple good works. Because of faith in Jesus. Enter into the joy. We get some drops of it today. On that day, we will get it in full. See your Savior and His grace for what it truly is. And you will be ready for His return. And you will enter into the joy of your Master. Let's pray. Our Lord, we can't begin to comprehend what that joy is. Our conception of joy is so small and is so shallow. Lord, would you give us a glimpse of it today? Would you revive our hearts from trusting and rejoicing in the scraps of this world to looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Trusting Him, O God. Give us a taste of that joy that we too would go forth, faithful in good works, awaiting with joy Your return and the everlasting reward earned for us by Christ and Him alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with hymn 413. Revive thy work, O Lord. Hymn 413. Would you stand with me as we close?